We're workplace caregiver advocates, and we provide practical and inspirational training for working caregivers through the companies they work for. I'm Debbie Howard, and I'm a caregiver advocate, a market researcher, and a yoga enthusiast. I'm Jonathan Brody. I'm a gerontologist who has worked in global healthcare for over 20 years, launching both pharmaceuticals and devices for adults, as well as being a caregiver for my family as well. I'm Tanya Krim, market researcher, gerontologist, caregiver long distance because my parents are in London. I'm also a coffee and chocolate lover. Our mission at Caregiver Camp's podcast is to expand the boundaries of thinking around where and how companies can support their caregiving employees. We hope you enjoy this episode today. I'm Tanya Krim, your host for this episode of Corporate Caregiver Camp podcast, and I'm here today with our guest, Crystal Thorpe, a mediator, trainer, co-founder, and principal of Elder Decisions, and its parent company, Agreement Resources, LLC. Welcome, Crystal. Thanks so much, Tanya. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming. And just a little bit about you before we begin. Crystal specializes in making hard conversations easier. She facilitates family meetings, and she mediates disputes related to transitions of aging around topics such as caregiving, living arrangements, family communication, and property distribution. Really important stuff. And for 18 years, she's been helping older adults and their families get unstuck. She also provides one-to-one conflict coaching, and she trains elder care professionals in conflict resolution skills. Over the past decade, she's trained hundreds of mediators from around the world in the growing field of elder and adult family mediation. You can find more about her work at agreementresources.com and elderdecisions.com. Again, welcome, Crystal. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Crystal, I'm a very inquisitive person, so I've got a bunch of questions for you, and I'm looking forward to hearing your answers. Our discussion topic today is going to be a tough juggling act, caregiving for aging parents and managing sibling relationships. So many people are familiar with the concept of mediation for divorces or employment disputes, Crystal. But mediation for elderly people, aka elder mediation, appears to be a well-kept secret for lots of people. So if you could please define exactly what it is and what triggered your initial interest in it, please. Sure. So mediation offers a chance for people to come together to resolve disputes. So we're really Uh, Mediators really are neutral facilitators. We're not there to take sides or give advice or even to decide for people what they should do, but we're really there to help people have a conversation and and make decisions together. We found that as people age and families are beginning to step in to provide care, that it's really common for there to be miscommunication and misunderstandings and sometimes different ideas about what's best for the person that's being cared for. And it can be a very emotional time. People can feel stressed and overwhelmed. So often conversations can go off the rails and a mediator can help families come together and communicate more effectively. We can help them talk about what's important to them, help them hear each other, brainstorm options that they might not have thought of before, and ultimately help them make decisions that they can all live with. They are in control of the outcome. We're not there to to decide, but the parties, the family members maintain control of of what they ultimately decide. Great. And what kinds of professionals are elder mediators typically? Like what's their background? Mediators are are skilled at helping people communicate more effectively. So they're often really good listeners. They're trained in conflict resolution. 
Sometimes in the field of elder mediation, sometimes people have a background in either elder law or aging life care. That's not critical. What's most important is that the the individual is really a good facilitator and a good good listener and good at being non-judgmental and helping people come together and communicate. That said, anybody who is doing mediation in the elder adult family field, even if they aren't an expert in elder law or aging life care, it's really important that they have enough awareness and understanding of those fields to be able to recognize when it is important to pull pull in an outside expert and also know about the laws that impact some of the decisions that people are being made enough to sort of flag it for the family and uh, to provide some information and also to be aware of community resources that are available. So things like what programs and living arrangements might be available for, for elders and their families as well. This is a bit of a naughty question, but I'm going to ask it. Do you find that people who are interested in elder mediation tend to be a little older or, you know, do you see like a bunch of people in their twenties also signing up for this type of position? Great question. I, I do believe that a lot of times people are getting into the area, into the field because they recognize that they've had to deal with it in their own lives and they understand the need for it. So we do certainly see a lot of people who have people come to our trainings who have family members that they've been involved in caring for. Mm-hmm. That said, we are seeing so so yes, I would say the majority are people who are a little bit older. And we also do see uh, younger folk coming into the field as well and recognizing, you know, that that this is a, a growing area. And, you know, I think sometimes it's people who have grandparents that that have needed care. And so they're recognizing it on a multi-generational level as well. That's an interesting thing because I kind of, I imagine that this wouldn't have been the case 10 years ago. I think it's because exactly as you said, it's a, you know, an aging population. Um, you know, you see grandparents and everything. So maybe it's triggering, you know, an awareness. Mm-hmm. Quick question. You talked about their backgrounds. How does the mediation effort differ from traditional psychotherapy? Because it does feel like there's some type of I don't know if there's a therapeutic element, but it feels like you have to be a good listener, a bit like a therapist. So that just made me wonder. Yeah, great question. And so we say that often that mediation can be therapeutic, even though it isn't therapy. That's a good line. <laughs> yeah, right. So we're not coming there to help people really dive deep into their past and focus so much on the past and the whys and, and all of that. We're really helping people focus more on the present and the future. That said, occasionally there are some things from the past that become barriers. And so it's not that we won't ever go back into the history. Uh, We may visit that briefly with with families if there's something that's sort of become a block for them that needs to be talked out. But we're not there to focus on and dwell on the past. We're really present and future focused. Okay. I find that interesting just um, because I know you wrote this book called mom always liked you best. So I would imagine that the past does affect the present, but I'm sure we'll cover that off later because I have a question that addresses that, but it's fascinating. So what are some of the facts about the plight of older adults reality today, which necessitate the need for elder mediation that you're seeing? Yeah. So a lot of it relates to the aging population that you've just been mentioning. So more and more people are needing care and more and more family members are being involved in that. And at the same time, the cost of care is going up. So there are financial strains as well on families. And there are a lot of options out there for care too. So people aren't always agreeing on on what the next best step is. So 
all of those things come together and kind of create a perfect storm, I guess I would say. Is there, uh, and this is a very topical question, um, has COVID been an additional fact that's necessitated elder mediation in a way that it hadn't pre-COVID? Yes, it definitely has impacted things. All these things were in place before and COVID has added new stresses, as we all know. And some of the living situations that were helping relieve stress for families, you know, when they knew that a family member was being cared for in a facility that, that was providing great care and a lot of activities, then suddenly that no longer became as positive because there was so much isolation there. Um, obviously now that's opened up again and, and people are able to take part in those activities, but that added new stresses on families as well. And on, on the individuals being cared for because of the isolation as well. And I guess the guilt also, you know, Mm -hmm. John is going to visit mom more often or she's in his house now. And, you know, what about his siblings? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. They're not pulling their weight because they're across the country or something. Right. So we both know it's 2022. There are about, I don't know, 42 million Americans taking care of elderly adults. That's not even mentioning the ones caring for younger ones. And by 2030, one in four people will be age 65 or over. I'm not a mathematician or stats person, but that's a big number. Caregiving is a very demanding job. And many caregivers have siblings who are involved in the caregiving equation, albeit sometimes at different levels. So if you can talk to me a little bit, Crystal, about how this impacts, if at all, on the need for elder mediation. You mentioned the piece about different levels of care, and I think that that's something that we see a lot of, and it relates to this idea of fairness. They can re- start to resent the additional care, no matter even if they deeply love their family member that they're caring for, if there's a sense of imbalance in terms of how much they are doing versus other family members, there can be a sense of resentment. And there can also be just a very practical impact on, you know, how much that person is able to earn because they are taking time away for their job from their job or perhaps even full-time caring for a loved one. And while their family members may be out in the full-time workforce. And so there can be a question around fairness and how does that translate into future inheritances and all of that. So that disparity between how much how involved people are in the care of a loved one can really impact the relationships between family members. So a piece of research I recently came across said that 40% of adult children who cared for parents said they had a major conflict with a sibling, a huge number, I would imagine, I mean, really consequential number. And if you could go into detail, please, about what actually causes siblings to argue and disagree about caregiving, I'm sure there are a myriad of, or maybe there's some buckets of topics that you could discuss with us, please, that cause these arguments and disagreements? Sure. So uh, some of it is related to just the the, vol- the amount of care that people are giving. And it's also, sometimes it's really hard to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. So two different family members may be doing an awful lot to contribute to the caregiving, and they may not fully appreciate what the other person is doing because they aren't doing it themselves. So they might not really see the the depth of care that's being provided. Somebody might be, for instance, doing all the grocery shopping and all the maintenance on the house. Somebody else might be doing the primary physical care and 
unless you're in the other person's shoes, it's really hard to get a sense of what that involves. So those are just two really simple examples. So that's one area that we see is just either very different amounts of time and energy and effort being put in between people and or a different sense of appreciation for how much time and effort is put in. So that's one area, just what the roles and responsibilities of each sibling is, you know, that's related, but another area, communication, how people communicate with each other. And sometimes it's just different styles. And sometimes there's a lack of awareness from an individual on how they might feel like they're just sort of enumerating the tasks that need to be done. And somebody else might feel like that's they're, they're being ordered around and that somebody is sort of on a high horse and, and trying to take charge of everything. And so there can be resentment there. So just how communication is handled can be an issue. And then another area that we see a lot is living situation. What is the, the quote unquote best situation for somebody needing care, whether that's, you know, maintaining the opportunity to live at home, whether it's living with a family member or having help come in or maybe moving to some kind of living situation with a facility. So those are often topic areas that, that we see conflict over. How about different opinions on medical treatments? Yeah, we do see that as well. Sometimes one family member may want more aggressive care for a loved one than others, including perhaps more than the person themselves who's going through the medical situation wants. So that, that can certainly be a topic of conflict as well. What about the involvement of the older person themselves? You know, if you're talking, it made me wonder, you know, with housing or medical treatment, it sounds all well and good to have the siblings, you know, argue about mom or dad, or, you know, is she going to live here or is he going to have this treatment? What is the role, in your opinion, of the older adult themselves when it comes to resolving, you know, these caregiving issues? I'm so glad you brought that up. We feel it's really important that when a decision is being discussed that's involving care of somebody or or where a person is sort of at the center of that, that they are indeed very much a part of that conversation. And that ultimately, if they still have the capacity to make those decisions, that it is their decision and that the family members are providing input, but ultimately anything that's really their decision remains their decision. And so- Whenever there's that capacity, then then we want to make sure that that person is very much part of that conversation. And even at the point where, you know, if, for instance, an individual has lost some level of capacity to make their decisions from a legal standpoint, they may have dementia, for instance, and maybe no longer have the capacity and competency to make a legal decision we still want to find a way to have what's important to them brought into the conversation and give them a voice in the process, whether it's finding out from them what their likes are and dislikes. If they're no longer able to express that, then thinking about what would mom and dad have wanted, what have they expressed in the past as being important to them, perhaps having a surrogate help express those those wishes. So it's very important that the person at the center of the conversation either be there fully participating or that there's a way to bring their their voice and their wishes into the process. It's so interesting because as you were saying that, Crystal, I was thinking that statement and, you know, enhances the need, the realization of the need for mediators to almost prime 
everybody out there about all the stuff that needs to be done for older adults when they're younger in order to ensure that when you get to the elder mediation phase, you actually are operating with as much info as possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, that, that's a topic for another day. I'm just wondering, debates about who the parents like best, referring to the book that you published a while ago, Mum Always Liked You Best. To what extent, if at all, do you find that mediation throws up this topic? Well, you know, mum always liked you best. So does that actually mean that the recommendation for her housing or medical treatment is what's best for her or it's most convenient for you? And, you know, you're the favored son. So does that automatically mean that your siblings' opinions are invalidated? I'm just wondering whether that is an area that you've also been involved with. So it's interesting. We're not there to help families uh, figure that out, you know, who was liked best or or that kind of thing. And it can be a theme that people, just in the terms of family dynamics in general, the way people have communicated in the past and what their assumptions are, that kind of thing can certainly feed into how they're going to make these decisions in the present and future going forward. If something like that is really an area where there is a lot of resentment or a lot of assumptions being made That's where I guess the therapeutic piece can come in, that if the family wants to go there and if it feels like it would be helpful, we can help families have conversations about what some of those assumptions are and help them talk through and clarify misunderstandings, clear the air so that they can then work more effectively together and moving forward. That said, sometimes people don't want to go there and they want to just... (laughs) They want to maybe work on becoming more aware themselves about how they show up in the conversation and being aware of their assumptions and what triggers they have and getting more clarity so that they can be more effective in their conversations with their siblings. So I guess I would say that, again, we're we're not there to determine where the family has to go in terms of this level of conversation. We're there to to show up and help people have the kind of conversations they want. And sometimes it means digging a little deeper. And and sometimes it means helping individuals that are in the conversation show up more effectively. And sometimes it's helping them stay on track on more very practical levels so that they can work together enough to make these decisions and provide good care going forward. It's interesting. I I would imagine that the deeply seated family myth, you know, does show up quite a lot, (laughs) would argue that it's probably better to resolve those disputes ahead of time also. So the key benefits of elder mediation, if you had to reiterate those in the big scheme of things, now that people are probably understanding more about all the work that you do. It really does give families a chance to, to make decisions going forward, you know, that they can live with and hopefully therefore have no regrets that they can feel like they've worked together to provide this care or or the decisions. It's not always about care either. I should say that, you know, we've had helped families have conversations around how to manage an inheritance, how to manage a vacation home, how to make decisions around decision-making around a variety of things. So anything that the family is either in conflict about or that they're trying to figure out a better way of making decisions together we can come in and help them through that. And so, so you ask about benefits 
having an outside facilitator makes a huge difference to helping people be able to something, you know, partly because people tend to be a little bit more on their best behavior when somebody else is there, but just not only because of that, we can help identify where the conversations start to go off the rails, help people hear each other more effectively. Sometimes people just are so caught up in the past patterns that they aren't hearing what each other is saying. We can help them organize what topics they want to talk about, help them identify what's really important to them about those topics. And from those things, you know, once they all have a better understanding about what's important to each other, they can brainstorm options that they might not have thought of otherwise that might be, you know, really creative solutions that, that wouldn't have even come to the forefront if they hadn't all gotten together in this way and then help them document their decisions. So as they make decisions, we can help chart what they've decided, help them think about what next steps are, and then also do some reality testing, help them think about what happens if this doesn't work out and document next steps and who's accountable as well, along with timeframes. It's interesting. It really does sound, you know, like a creative brainstorming session at the end of the day. I'm just wondering, do you initiate the kind of creative juices or do you kind of plant some ideas or is it a mixture of the two? Thanks. A great question. We generally really help generate the creative juices because in the process, we're helping people identify what's important to them. And I know that that sounds really simple. Often people haven't really thought about the why. So they may have a really concrete idea about what should happen, but when we help explore why, they get more clarity on on why they want something. And I, I should probably give an example. Um, yeah, why don't you? <laughs> that okay. sounds great. I'd love an example. <laughs> okay, great. So here's an example from the book, actually. Somebody may say that they they really want to stay living at home. And the family might say, Dad, it's just not practical. You know, you you need you're not going to be able to live at home because, and they'll have all their reasons. But if the mediator and the family work together and clarify with dad what's important to him about staying at home, it may turn out that he really wants uh, his belongings, the things that are around him, he wants to be surrounded by that. It may turn out that he really loves the community that he's in. He wants to maintain contact with friends. He wants to have more autonomy in terms of how his day goes. There may be a tremendous amount of information that can be gleaned about why he wants to stay at home. From that, we can then help the family brainstorm, how can we meet all those different interests in a way that will work for him and work for the family members? And from those different things, a a variety of different brainstorms might come up. It might be bringing in care. It might be having somebody live in with him. It might be moving to a, a nearby facility and one that will allow him to maintain contact with everybody and have some of his own favorite belongings come with him. Maybe he's presumed that if he moves, he won't be able to keep his beloved pet. So getting clarity on that and then figuring out what the options are around that. So once people hear what's important and what assumptions are being made, from there, often there's this wealth of ideas that can come up that people just wouldn't have thought of otherwise. and once those um, juices start flowing, so to speak, we can create this huge long list that people are all contributing to. So we don't necessarily come up with options immediately. We really like the family to generate those. We may throw in a few other ideas that we've heard other people, other families 
offer as well so that there's a lot of information that people can consider, but we're not going to be saying, oh, we think you should do this. We're just sort of adding to the mix of all the different things that have come up. I love that example and it particularly resonates with me because unfortunately, as I, my father passed away a few months ago, but he was very attached to his belongings, you know, photos and books and work. And I actually hypothesized he didn't want to leave the family home because of that. Do elder mediators ever address conflicts with siblings who each have caregiving roles, but are geographically distant? I'm interested in how that works just quickly. You know, my sister and I live in New Jersey. My brother lives abroad and my mother moved close to him. So that's something that is, you know, top of mind as we navigate the various uh, lanes that we're in. Absolutely. I guess one of the, you mentioned COVID earlier, one of the Benefits isn't the right word because obviously we would all wish that we never had to have gone through this whole thing with COVID. I won't get sidetracked on that, but uh, obviously that that if this had all never happened, we would all be much better off. Yeah. And through what we've all had to learn with the pandemic, people are much more comfortable with Zoom. We've been using Zoom since about 2015 for families where there has been geographic disparity. And now everyone seems to be much more comfortable with it. So, wow, I didn't know. That's pretty impressive since 2015. Woo. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> yeah. And so you mentioned about caregiving roles and and the fact that families can come together and communicate so much more easily now with with this technology and be comfortable with it is a huge benefit that that families can take advantage of. And it does add stress to families, as you say, if families are geographically dispersed and someone needs care. So, so yes, I mean, that is a contributing factor in some of the conflict. And fortunately, some of the technology and the resources that are available mean that there are more options nowadays than there used to be for, for families to, to deal with some of these issues. That's great. Jumping on your um, COVID reference, it's certainly COVID has revealed a lot about people And for many people, I think it's reinforced that we don't all have the same situations and that lives can be super complicated. How do you feel that it has shone a light on the need to adjust elder mediation as this is likely to benefit individuals? I think that what we've just talked about in terms of the the ability for people to connect across differences has certainly been something that's come to light more with covid And I think people's recognition that connection is so important, that has certainly shifted and people's priorities. So all of those things, I think, have been impacted as a result. I think we've also had to work that much harder, all of us as as a culture and a community, to make sure that the elder's voice is, or the older person's voice is brought into the process with technology it's more possible for that to happen. And sometimes there's nothing like being there in person with people. So how can we find ways, if we are stuck with just using Zoom, for instance, how can we find ways to make that more comfortable for people who might not be as comfortable with that? You know, how can we set a setting so that they have somebody, a support person that can help get them on and set the tone and be comfortable and then also provide privacy so that they can have some time one-on-one with a mediator and be able to speak unencumbered by what they think everyone else is going to think yeah. and, and be able to really have some of that one-on-one time. I yeah. will just say that when an older person is involved, 
prior to the pandemic and and now that things are opening up a little bit more whenever possible we do try to do that conversation with the older person in person because there's so much more that we can see and they can see with the body language so we still try to do that in person if possible and if it's safe and we've learned and they've learned that that zoom can still be very effective in that regard as well it's very interesting that you said that i would hypothesize as well that for really skilled interviewers even zoom can be well managed and you know physical you know body language as well as you know facial expressions mm-hmm. very very well read and you know just an aside very quickly i actually interviewed my late father on zoom for many months i wrote his life story because i do legacy storytelling and mm-hmm. it was interesting because i actually was able to see his mood gauge his mood and his you know level of physical wellness by watching and kind of checking in with him so that that's an additional thing apart from mediation it's actually an interesting way to gauge um, somebody's you know physical and emotional well-being for older people which is probably mm-hmm. an additional secondary benefit for us you know an astute mediator mm-hmm. um, just to wrap up I'm just wondering what are the things that we can do to encourage people to pursue elder mediation in order to enhance effective communication between sibling caregivers. You mentioned that COVID has really thrust communication and connection into the limelight, which I totally agree with. So what can be done? I'd say a few things. And thank you for the question. I think part of it is spreading the word about the value and the benefit of elder adult family mediation. I've been talking a lot today more about the dispute end of things, you know, when there's miscommunication, misunderstandings, often families can benefit from elder adult family mediation or facilitation proactively so that they can start to have a conversation before there's a crisis, before this disagreement, help open up the communication around what people's wishes are. And, and sometimes that just feels scary for whatever reason to have with family members. So to start to have the conversation saying, you know, things are good now and we want to make sure they continue that way and that we fully understand what what each person's wishes are and how we might address this going forward. So let's have a proactive family meeting to start to address that conversation. So an outside facilitator can do that as well. So one is just spreading the word that the possibility is there and that the field is there to help people, whether in crisis or not. Uh, number two, I guess, would be thinking about mediation and facilitation as a proactive, positive thing that doesn't have stigma attached and is just something that can help families make these decisions and work together more productively going forward. Because often family members really love each other and they want what's best for each other and their family members, and they just get stuck. And so having somebody help them get through those conversations so that they get unstuck and move forward. And hopefully the mediators are working themselves out of a job and they can continue those conversations going forward on their own. So that's part two. And then as I was thinking about what, what might be a helpful message today, uh, knowing that you're, you're working with corporations and, and employees Caregiving can be a huge distraction uh, from the day-to-day work that people have to do in their jobs. Uh, People become stressed when there's conflict among their family members. They become stressed when they're worried about a loved one and really wanting to make sure that they're safe. And the conflict can keep people up at night and can impact the rest of their lives. And so it could be really beneficial for families 
to have access to mediation to help them resolve these issues and help them, you know, get these things sorted out amongst their family members so that they can then focus on the other things that are really important in their lives, like their jobs. So we have seen some EAP programs, employee assistance programs, take an interest in mediation, and some are providing discounts or or rosters of mediators for other kinds of mediation, like divorce and those kinds of things, Mm -hmm. and to heighten the awareness of EAP programs around mediation for elder and adult family members would be very helpful as well as a benefit for employees so that they can help sort out their family lives and help implement care and communication among their family members so that they can then return and focus more on their jobs while they're at their jobs. I think that's an amazing and excellent recommendation. And I would even hypothesize that They could be engaging, you know, working in a less stressful manner if they were engaged in mediation. Maybe, you know, they can go on Wednesday night, even while they're continuing their jobs, you know, like a therapy session that kind of gets them, propels them forward. So I love that. So thank you for all these amazing insights, Crystal. Like you, I am someone who appreciates the layers of complexities experienced by families as parents age. I'm there myself. So it's been very interesting and enjoyable to talk with you and further understand how essential it is going to be to highlight the importance of elder mediation in our very broken world. So no matter what, the challenge is definitely for siblings to acknowledge that they, as well as their parents, are individuals with a life journey and a story. And bearing that in mind appears likely, you know, to gain traction as we advance in our COVID world. And hopefully more and more people will acknowledge and appreciate the value of elder mediation. So For everyone who's listening, thank you, Crystal. And if you're interested in finding out more about what Crystal and her colleagues can offer, please go to agreementresources.com or elderdecisions.com. And Crystal, thanks again for all the valuable work you're doing in the landscape of elder mediation. Thank you so much, Tanya. It's been a pleasure and I really appreciate your insightful questions. Thanks so much for joining us today. This is Debbie Howard. This is Tanya Krim. And I'm Jonathan Brody. We are the hosts of Caregiver Camp's podcast. Please feel free to share our podcast and consider joining us for new perspectives in creating more productive, caregiver-friendly workplaces. Come visit us at caregivercamps.com to learn more about how we can help your company. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time at Caregiver Camp's podcast.